This is Generation Justice, a multiracial project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I am Milian Cordova. And I'm Kateri Zuni. Tonight, we hear from people working for social change through academia and music. First, youth producer Emilio Bovalet sits down with local hip-hop artist Wakes Off for an exclusive introduction to his new album, Ready to Live. Then, we hear a presentation from Professor Mari Castaneda, Associate Dean of Equity and Inclusion at the University of Amherst, Massachusetts. And throughout the evening, we'll feature songs from Wake Self's new album, starting with the song, Love Myself. On wealth and riches, what about self-acceptance, self-forgiveness, what about self-improvement, health and fitness, emotional healing and health conditions, you fight depression, cut yourself, but your life is precious, love yourself, yeah. trying to hold me down, you should lift me up, world full of hate, but I still show love, been through the stress and the ears and the sweat and the tears and the blood, still show love, and I still show love, still show love, and I still show love, still show, I'm just trying to love, love, Wake Self is a native New Mexican hip-hop artist who raps to bring light to injustice, question the world around us, and spread positivity. Wake has performed around the world and has recently released his latest album, Ready to Live. Now, 13-year-old youth producer Emilio Bovalet speaks with Wake Self. This is Emilio Bovalet with Generation Justice, and I'm speaking with native New Mexican hip-hop artist Wake Self. He has shared the stage with legendary hip-hop artists like Dilated Peoples, Blackalicious, KRS-One, De La Sol, and Mac Miller, just to name a few. Wake's debut solo album, The Healing Process, was released in 2013, and he joins us today to discuss his latest album, Ready to Live. Wake Self, welcome back to Generation Justice. Please share more about yourself. Blessings. What up, y'all? Um, this is Wake Self. I'm from New Mexico, born in Roswell, lived in Albuquerque the last 10 years. You know, I love music and I believe that, you know, ideas are bulletproof. I believe that music can be like water, like medicine. Um, and I'm happy to be here with y'all. Thank you for sharing. Take us through your journey in the New Mexico hip hop scene. Man, um, I feel like New Mexico hip-hop is like an untapped resource. It's like a diamond field of diamonds that nobody knows exists, you know. Um, growing up, just I used to go to these things called b-boy jams where you have all types of b-boy crews like battling each other. It's like, you know, when you watch movies and see hip-hop like in the 80s, you know what I mean? Yeah. That was happening like in the 2000s when I was growing up, you know, and then, like just to see it in real life and not on a movie was crazy. It was like all, all types of graffiti writers and b-boy crews and rappers and DJs and everybody coming together. And I think being able to see that part of hip hop culture instead of just being like a rapper trying to get on um, via like SoundCloud or whatever it is gave me so much perspective to realize that hip-hop does so much for, you know, so many people, of course, gives us monetary gains and things like that, but in a, in a much deeper sense, it, like, gave us so much community and, you know, awareness of who we are and ability to, like, some people, this is the only thing we have to, like, explore our culture, 
personal heritage, explore our issues, you know, feel like we belong. So I think just growing up around all that rich, like hip hop culture was crazy for me. You know, there's a lot of dope B-boys, a lot of so many talented people in, in New Mexico. And I think um, I'm just always in awe of it. And I've been appreciative of all the talent and community-based um, learning that I've been had the opportunity to be a part of, you know. Yeah, it's powerful. Um, Ready to Live is your new album. Tell us about it. Um, so I know you guys probably heard of Notorious B.I.G., right, the rapper. Um, he had an album called Ready to Die. So my this is my sort of flip on that, Ready to Live. Um, I think I came up with that concept because right now a lot of my efforts are taking things and repurposing them so it's like taking you know past trauma and repurposing it it's like sort of spiritual alchemy or mental emotional alchemy to be able to take something and create something positive at it out of it you know i love hip-hop i love all types of hip-hop you know i'm young so I, I listen to a lot of you know things that maybe oh you know more old school people probably wouldn't feel like trap hip-hop and stuff but i still love that stuff too but what i don't you know see too often is i feel like records that could play in the club or things like that but have a positive message and that's kind of what i've been venturing towards you know i used to be more about like being real lyrical and all that but now i'm just about making songs that can have a different type of energy you know so it's like taking things that are already abundant in our society and flipping them and recreating them and then also taking things like stereotypes of you know being a thug rapper or you know right now it's kind of like a also a trend to like fetishize trauma and depression you know in hip-hop and music and be a sad boy which you know i'm part sad boy so it's all good <laughs> i could feel that too and but my thing is like i don't look at nobody and say you know what you're doing is wrong i'm not a critic you know i think i change that i re i repurpose that part of myself just to be like okay i can look at everything and appreciate the potential in all different sorts of avenues and scenarios but my but what i'm doing here is is all positive you know it's all um even when it's not positive i think some of some people might hear this newer album and hear some some songs that may be a little sadder and they'd be like, well, you know, this is not positive music. Um, but, you know, positivity has layers and levels to it. So, yeah, it's just all about, you know, repurposing things and just those moments when you really feel alive and when, you know, when you can taste the life inside of food and when you can see the life inside of somebody's eyes and just, you know, appreciating the the beautiful opportunities we have here to be alive, you know. That's what it's about. Yeah. It's inspiring. Um, what ways have you grown through this process? Um, I've been making this album for three years, so I've gone through so many changes. You know, sometimes uh, there was a point where I felt kind of embarrassed, like, man, you haven't put an album out in three years. It's crazy. I don't even know how I'm still paying my bills. But, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, off of making music. Is this what I do for a living? But, um, you know, I think... Everything happens at, at its own pace. Of course, we can, we're the ones who manipulate reality and, you know, as you think, so you become. But a lot of these 
different levels that I went through and personal developments that I went through in the last few years, I feel like was all important to to be at where I'm at now. Um, I think one of the major ways that I, I changed was just being able to accept everything, you know, and still realize that I can do whatever I want. But me being able to do whatever I want doesn't have to interfere with nobody else. You know, like everybody else can, they can speak their truth. And I could be like, okay, you know, that might be, that's true. I appreciate what you're saying, but I could still have my own um, truth as well. Cause you know, everything changes. Um, I also took singing lessons the last two years. I also took piano lessons, learn how to make piano beats. And I made a lot of beats on this album, which I've never done before. I never rapped on my own beats and released it. So, you know, it's a big change for me. Um, you know, just a lot of personal development, changing how I think, changing how I look at the world. I went vegan. <laughs> just a lot of, you know, things that I feel like helped me try to look at myself and be like, you know, how can I be better? How can I show up in my friends' lives, family's lives, you know, people who support me and just and be able to add value? Yeah, yeah. Um, how is this different from your previous work? It's doper <laughs> it's more doper um well like i was saying i may I, it's more personal i feel like a lot of the times you have to reach down and really get into your authentic self to create something that you really love so i feel like i had no fear anymore just to be myself you know mm -hmm. so i think this is more me than anything i ever put out yeah so what inspires you to rap um my mom's you guys <laughs> vegan carnitas inspire me to rap everything inspires me to rap i feel like when you when you're a creator you know there's inspiration in every single thing you can touch taste smell internalize every i'm curious about everything i feel like that's the way that you immortality is really like maintaining your curiosity you're only as old as your ability to process new information, you know. I like animal videos a lot. I like watching videos with cats in it, doing, wearing like human clothes and, <laughs> you know, you know those videos, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, I never realized that pigs were so cute. A lot of things like that. I love animal videos. I love everything, honestly. I love reading books, um, listening to audio books. I'm really into trying to discover the true history of the world, like as it's told in different cultures, not just in mainstream science, you know, trying to retrace history to figure out how much we really know about this spinning rock, you know, because things change so much and there's so much of the world that's undiscovered and there's probably so much of the world that we'll never be able to like geologically excavate, you know what I mean? from past civilizations so i'm really inter interested in like ancient history um i'm a nerd so i'm into all types of tech computer technology apps um i think that's the cool thing about life is just, there's just so many things to sort of like geek out on and, and, and slide into you know like life is amazing you know there's all t like we're sitting here but you know our our tunnel of vision that we see out of compared to the big picture of reality, you know, we're seeing through a slit a lot of the times. There's just so many different facets and layers and experiences 
to absorb in this life. So I think curiosity is like never ending for me. Where do you see yourself in the future? I see myself having accomplished the goals I have now and then working towards new goals. That's nice, yeah. What is your message to the youth of New Mexico? To believe in yourself, first of all. You know, I know it sometimes seems like we don't have as much opportunities here, you know, depending on what line of work you're in, but we have a lot of talent and we're just so unique here. So just to believe in your own uniqueness and to love yourself and just try your hardest, that's all you can do, you know. Just love yourself, um, accept the fact that you're unique and you're a blessing and your life is precious and try your best. That's inspiring. When can folks expect your album release? Are there events to celebrate? I have a release party at Meow Wolf. But it's mainly like a pre-release celebration, listening party. We're going to listen to the album, some live performances. You know, I'm going to have some special gifts. There's going to be people um, doing cartwheels into kiddie pools full of vegan mayo. Where can people find more information about the event? If you go to Meow Wolf's website, they have pre-sale tickets up for sale. Um, I know the tickets are going fast, but there's still some left for sure. It's all ages. It's November 7th. Um, my friends Reviva are playing. They're a really dope band. My friend Lily Fangs is performing. She's an incredible just human being in general, but as well as singer and artist. Where can people go to find more information about you and your work? Everywhere. Um, Instagram, at WakeSelf. Everything is just at WakeSelf, WakeSelf.com. I'm out here. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you'd like to add? Ooh, um, you know, I like to say just to the to the fellas, to the men out there, you know, make sure you, su- you uh, support healthy masculinity, you know, support and, you know, try to shift the tides and, and push women up to the front, you know. Um, eat some vegetables, dance in the shower, wash your armpits, love yourself. My, <laughs> I'll be random sometimes, you know. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for an amazing freestyle. This is very empowering. It's very inspirational. And we are super happy to have you here. Hey, appreciate y'all. Um, shout out to Generation Justice always. Man, much love. For Generation Justice, I'm Emilio Bovale. Thank you, Wake Self, for coming on the show. When you said immortality is just maintaining curiosity, this was powerful. It opened my eyes to see a new view in life. Thank you again for joining us at Generation Justice, Wake Self. And thank you to Emilio Bovale for a great interview. Now we get to hear that freestyle. Here's Wake Self, who did a freestyle around GJ's core values like multiculturalism and youth empowerment. Hi, Wake Self. Want a freestyle? Yes, sir. Let's do this. So, so they wrote me some words down on a piece of paper. We're just gonna do this on the on the spot. Freestyle topics. Yeah. One, two. Yeah. Uh. I'm blessing them quick. Wake self, new album is ready to live. Yeah, it's longevity, cause God living me. Drop quick, you know I'm feeling positivity, uh. Understand, I'm not grabbing guns, homeboy, I'm just having fun, yeah. Understand, I devour it. 
Wake self, uh, I'm on that flower tip. Freestyle, yo, I get down real quick. It's all for the youth. It's youth empowerment. Yeah, it's what it do to us. We cooking with that soul. It's cause you know that food is love, uh. It's ingenuity when I'm speaking it musically from you to me. You know we rocking, we do it for community, uh. Yes, sir, off of the brain. Dropping insane, cause knowledge is change. Unlocking the change, flow no vulture. For all the people, every race, multiculture. As I'm speaking this, the sequences, every single second will be drop it like we geniuses. Uh, walk on water like Jesus is. Off the top, understand it's youth leadership. Peep it out, yo, it's generation justice. Saying it loud, we make the revolution public. When I bust in, understand, yo, it's cutting pace. Actually, I see the tears up on my mother's face. Yeah, matter of fact, I'm looking other ways. Give respect to the people who taught me in younger days. We rocking the mic, we dropping it like. Say prayers for the earth because water is life, right? Yeah. And your man brings a lot of knowledge, a lot of wisdom, understanding. Understanding we dropping and then we bless it. From now to the present, get down like a legend. Yes, sir. Off the top, got that fresh words. Blessers, peace to your professors, yo. And we dropping and ripping off of the top. We getting and hitting the rhythm. And you know it's knowledge and wisdom we spitting. Understand it, y'all. Wake self, standing tall, rhyming raw. Yes, sirs, keep your eyes on the ball. Spring forward, show you how to rise in the fall. Understand, creating when I'm breathing. My brain cells even, changing like the seasons. Every single second, the method dropping and showing how we be doing it, keeping it moving. My heart is open. Yes, sir. Hey. Professor Mari Castaneda is a professor of communication and the associate dean for equity and inclusion at the University of Amherst, Massachusetts. Recently, Professor Castaneda shared her research on the ways universities can ethically support the work of community organizing and social justice movements. She shared this presentation in partnership with the UNM Communication and Journalism Department and as part of the Imagining America National Gathering held in Albuquerque this October. Now, here is Professor Castaneda presenting civic engagement in diverse Latinx communities, learning from social justice partnerships in action. So thank you everyone again for being here and for sharing um, why folks are here. I, I think it's also, um, for me, you know, one of the, the reasons why I do this kind of work, it's that if, I, if I'm gonna be in a university setting, I also feel like how do we bring those resources back to the communities that in many ways we are part of, but also particularly for flagship universities, public universities, we really do have a commitment, are supposed to have a commitment to working with communities. And for me, a lot of this conversation and a lot of the work that I've done is very much inspired by being first gen, by being uh, the child of immigrants from Mexico. And so my family, my dad's from Zacatecas, my mom is from La Frontera, from Mexicali. They met in Los, Los Angeles in LA. And um, they didn't go to college, but were very, very, of course, supportive of uh, educational backgrounds of us, you know, my siblings and I going on to college. Although there was also a struggle because they were very scared of what does it mean if you go to college? That means you're never going to come back, which in some ways happened but didn't happen, you know, because I'm, I'm in, L in, in Massachusetts right now in Western Mass, but I go constantly back and forth between LA and Western Massachusetts. But the other piece is like, are you going to disown the community? Are you now going to 
feel like you're no longer part of the community because you feel like you're educated now, you're, you're moving from this uh, working class environment to another maybe middle class environment, and what does that mean for the family, what does it mean for the broader communities that you were a part of. Um, and so for me, being very committed and very rooted to not only where I grew up, but the communities that I'm part of now has inspired and has been one of the big reasons why I do a lot of the work that I do. I think a lot of, for a lot of scholars of color, being in community is also a really important part for staying in the academy. The academy can be a really difficult place for a lot of us um, because and oftentimes we're going into spaces where we are the only ones. I'm still oftentimes the only faculty of color in a meeting with other associate deans and deans at my university. Um, I'm oftentimes the only one uh, that is a first gen faculty uh, as well. So not just a faculty of color, but also someone who doesn't come from a legacy of educational background in the same way, different kinds of legacies and cultural capital that's very different, but not necessarily higher education per se. And so being in those spaces and thinking about what are the ways in which we can bring those university um, both resources and, and commitment to a community setting for me has been a really important part of why I'm at the university in the first place. Because if I couldn't do that, then I don't want to be a professor. Like for me, it was like, I'm not interested in necessarily, I mean, of course I love research, but research that really is more socially activist oriented and social justice oriented. That's been always the sort of emphasis of my work. And luckily I have been in a department and a university that has really inspired that and has been very supportive of that. Um, and so I'm, I'm really happy to be in a place that allows me to do this kind of work. And, and our university also does a lot of um, community-based engagement, so community service learning, community civic engagement. Um, so this particular title of the, of the talk or the conversation we're going to have today is actually based on a co-edited book that came out last year that I uh, did with uh, Joseph Kropchinski, who is also the director of civic engagement service learning uh, at UMass Amherst and is an architecture professor and is Polish-Puerto Rican. Uh, and so this particular book also includes uh, across the board uh, Latinx faculty from different parts of the country at different universities um, that were doing community-based work with students and with other community partnerships. And one of the things that we noticed in a lot of the literature and the discussions about civic engagement, service learning, particularly looking at communities of color and specifically Latinx communities, is that oftentimes it was all very bad. Right? Deficit orientations of what the community actually has as opposed to asset-based approaches to thinking about what are the various different forms of cultural heritage and legacy that is very vibrant and very important in those communities that oftentimes get seen in negative ways as opposed to something that's positive. So that was one of the things that we were trying to sort of unpack and think about. And the other piece was what does it look like when faculty of color are entering into communities? Because a lot of the literature was largely white faculty were entering and working with communities of color, which was great, but that particular voice of, of Latinx and faculty of color overall was missing. And so that was the other piece of what we wanted to do with this book is to bring those voices of the students, the faculty, and community partners into conversation with each other. Um, so these are the four concepts that we've been grappling with with regards to how do we do this kind of work? How do you do it in a way that includes community collaboration, there's a criticality of it, and the piece of communication that's taking place? Because without sort of really unpacking what those concepts are or how you're engaging with community, 
it could be more exploitative than actually productive when working with community partners and with community settings. And there's so many, I mean, there's so much work that's been done where it's about extracting from the community as opposed to giving back to the community. It's about how is this going to allow me to become a tenured faculty member or reach the ranks of, as a graduate student, actually get my PhD, as opposed to really thinking about how can I work in reciprocity and collaboration with the people that I'm working with to do this kind of work that could be co-productive on both ends. Um, and so really thinking more um, critically about how are, we, how are we engaging. And a lot of community partners have oftentimes said, I don't want to work with the university anymore. I don't want to work with professors because they come and they dump their students. They'll say, okay, go into that community, do your thing, and come back and report back and get whatever you want from your experience. But the students themselves are, maybe are contributing, but then there isn't something that goes back to the community itself. And so really trying to think a much more social justice orientation of how do we enter into these community spaces that are not simply about extracting and exploiting and really working in collaboration and in community with the folks that we're trying to work with, uh, whether it's through a research project or a class um, that we're trying to do. So really questioning the complexity of community. Everyone thinks about community as a, you know, sort of a homogeneous group, but it's not, right? It's very complex. There's, there's lots of different communities within a community. Even Latinx communities are diverse, right? So that's why we titled also the book Diverse Latinx Communities because there is the issue, as you know, of race and ethnicity and cultural heritage and migration stories and all those different pieces make a big uh, difference in how we enter into community. So really thinking about what is the complexity of the community that I'm working with um, and really sort of unpacking that a little bit more and really getting to know those communities to make sure that you understand that. So for instance, the community that I work in, you know, I identify as Chicana, but the community that I'm working with is largely Boricua, is Puerto Rican that's been there since the 1930s that migrated after Operation Bootstrap from the island to the Northeast. And the community that, that I tend to work with is Holyoke, Massachusetts, and it has the largest concentration of Puerto Ricans percentage-wise outside of the island of Puerto Rico, although that number is now going way up because of Hurricane Maria. And, um, and climate migrants that are now reshifting and rechanging what's happening, particularly in the East Coast, up and down the coast, particularly Florida and Massachusetts and New, in New England area. But in terms of knowing that complexity, it's really important to sort of unpack and really think about what are the challenges and the issues that folks are grappling with. Um, the multiplicity of, of collaboration. So collaboration has multiple levels, multiple ways in which people are working together uh, in community settings with faculty, with students, who are also bringing their own lived experiences and their own uh, cultural backgrounds into a particular space. And in terms of really thinking the multi-layered ways in which we can collaborate together, uh, right? So then not also thinking as sort of uh, as a one way or sort of singular, but thinking it in more sort of multi-layered ways uh, becomes, I think, really critical for thinking about collaboration. Uh, the other one is the challenge of criticality. Sometimes people don't want to necessarily be critical and self-reflexive of the work that we're doing and really thinking about, is this in the benefit of the community? How does that benefit come, come about? How do we work together to really think about what is it the kind of project that we're trying to do in the class or in a research context that really is going to be uh, sort of rooted in reciprocity across the board for everyone. So I teach a class called Latinx Media Studies every spring, and I work very closely with Latinx community, particularly Puerto Rican 
uh, media producers from Western Massachusetts. And uh, there's one particular person that I work with that I'm going to be working with this spring. Uh, her name is Natalia Munoz. Uh, and, she, and Natalia Munoz and Vanessa Pavon are the two partners. One of them works with uh, WGBY, which is our local PBS station in Western Massachusetts. The other one works with Holyoke Media, which is a community-based uh, local television station. And both of them are doing programming that's related to the local Latinx communities um, and the ways in which they're really trying to reshift and rethink the narrative of what's happening with regards to this particular moment in time, which a lot of communities feel under attack and they feel completely demonized. And even though Puerto Ricanos are citizens, they're not always necessarily treated as citizens in the same way. A lot of people feel uh, in the New England area in particular like second-class citizens, oftentimes because if they're coming from the island and they're predominantly Spanish speakers, even though they're citizens, they're not seen as necessarily cultural citizens or even citizens that belong in that space. And so some of the stuff that we've been doing is really trying to challenge and rethink and develop new kind of counter-narratives of what does it mean to be Boricua in New England in this post-Maria context uh, where the island is still really struggling to try to get back to the way that it was before the hurricane hit. Um, and so one of the things that we do together in terms of the challenge of criticality is that I don't develop the course by myself. I work very closely with my community partners to develop the syllabus together, to really think about what are the, the themes and the topics that we need to discuss that are really important for the students to understand. And the majority of my students are actually not even Latino. Majority of my students, I would say, out of class of 25, uh, 20 will be white students, five will be uh, students of color out of that five, three will be African American, one Asian, and one Latino. Uh, and that has to do with the fact that the university itself uh, is not a very diverse university. It's predominantly white. Uh, that brings a lot of students from the New England Northeast area. Um, and also in terms of the issue of educational attainment has been a struggle still for some of our communities. Um, but these students that are in the class are really interested and really want to know, uh, how do I work with Latinx communities? I'm, I feel like this is a part of what's going to be my future in terms of working, whether in a state level uh, job or working in some kind of business environment. Students really want to be interested. And even though the class is Latinx media studies, we're not necessarily focusing only on Latinx education and so forth. They're really interested in wanting to, to think about that. So I bring my community partners in conversation, not only with the students who then come to the class and do co-lectures with me, but we spend a lot of time in community as well. So we spend a lot of time in Holyoke and in Springfield, which are the urban closest areas where uh, next to Amherst. So majority of my work is not taking place in Amherst, actually. It's taking place in these urban environments about 20 minutes uh, from the campus. And so by bringing our community partners into these university settings, we start also reshaping those uh, spaces and reclaiming who are these spaces for? Who gets invited and who doesn't? Who gets to be part of these university spaces? Um, and who gets to be part of also the community spaces? How do we bring the university and our students and the resources that they have into those spaces as well? So that becomes one of the ways of doing that, uh, of really challenging myself as a faculty member, as someone that wants to be in collaboration with community partners to really rethink how are we supposed to be developing this course in the first place? There's oftentimes assumptions of a course is developed in a particular way in terms of syllabus, and I really want to disrupt that. I really want to rethink how are we doing uh, the course development? How do we think about teaching and pedagogy that really makes at the center these Latinx experiences in order for students to understand what does it mean to, to be in these communities in this particular point in time? 
And then also, of course, the importance of communication. How do you bring that peace uh, in conversation with folks in order to make sure that you really are taking into account what are the, not only the needs and desires that a community partner has, but also the students. What are the students hoping to get out of this collaboration and this engagement uh, and thinking about what is the purpose of this course that we're trying to do together? And at UMass, we actually have many, many community-based courses uh, that, hold, that do a lot of the community architecture, for instance. There's a lot of food justice work that's taking place. There's a lot of community farming work that's happening because we are a very rural uh, area. There's actually a class that's also working a lot with the tobacco field workers because the New England area is very well known for its tobacco fields that right now are largely Mexicano, Guatemalteco, Salvadoreño, and Puerto Ricoño. So those are the large populations that are, are, that are working in the tobacco fields. Um, and I was just thinking right now, there's a new book called, uh, by Ocean Vong. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It's uh, in, on Earth, We're Briefly Gorgeous. He's a new MacArthur Fellow. He also is a faculty member at UMass Amherst. But the thing about his book is that he spends some time talking about the tobacco workers uh, of the New England area. That really sort of unpacks that experience of what it's like. And as a faculty member, he spent some time uh, working with those uh, tobacco workers along with students to really understand what does that experience uh, necessarily look like. So just really quickly in terms of some of the key insights with regards to the, the book itself, these were some of the things that we wanted to, to really emphasize that Latinx scholar activists and community voices uh, need to be heard. And we wanted to make sure that they were really heard in a way that, again, uh, counteracts a lot of what the literature has necessarily discussed. Uh, challenge and expand uh, knowledge creation and engagement. Again, really acknowledging the fact that the communities themselves are already coming with funds of knowledge and community uh, knowledge that oftentimes it gets disregarded at the university level in the sort of notions of what is rigor and what is scholarly uh, sort of production. And so how do we rethink how do we, that work gets produced? How do we really bring into account that those funds of knowledge of community that really can reshape and rethink how we're doing um, sort of scholarship production at our universities. Disrupt the negative stereotypes of Latinx communities. And again, even though here we're talking about Latinx communities in the title, in the book chapters themselves, it, it really is about respecting how communities self-identify themselves. So the book has uh, pieces by folks, by communities that are indigenous, that identify as Puerto Rican, that identify as Mexican-American, that identify as Salvadoreño. So really making sure that we're not necessarily imposing labels or imposing what we think the community should be uh, sort of, design, sort of um, claiming itself to be. But in fact, even the title of the book, we went back to the community partners and said, we're going to title this book, Civic Engagement in Diverse Latinx Communities. Are you all okay? Let's have a conversation about this. Let's really think about what does that mean? Because Latinx itself is also a contested word. It's not necessarily like everyone agrees that this is the word that should be utilized. And so we really had a very important and productive conversation about why are we titling it that, but then how do we respect where people self-identify within the chapters themselves so that we're not uh, imposing and so forth. But at the same time, really trying to disrupt the negative stereotypes because a lot of the communities were saying, the reality is that, uh, for instance, I have a, a nephew, um, and he refuses to call himself Mexicano. He's like, I can't say that I'm Mexican. I can't say that I'm Mexican. And I said, why, mijo? Why can't you say that you're Mexicano? Because you are. And he's like, because that's, that's racist. To call myself Mexican is racist. 
And so we're in this moment in time right now, right, where even young children are feeling that because of the kind of narratives that we see in mass media, that they themselves can't even claim a particular identity. And so part of the book and the work that's taking place in these various different universities and uh, community contexts is really about trying to disrupt that and trying to reclaim and saying, you know, that, that whatever the narratives that are out there that are being produced are not okay, and we're trying to do a counter narrative of that in many ways. Um, and starting to work with also school children to truly think about that. Um, dislodged community academic barriers that, again, are so much part of so many university contexts where the university exists in and of itself and has no kind of connection to the local communities, has, feels no sense of responsibility, particularly in our institution. We're a flagship university of the state of um, Massachusetts, but also are a public trust. And so how do we really think about the, the resources that are both student resources, not just financial, but also the academic work that's being done by faculty as a way of trying to dislodge, dislodge those academic community barriers? And then again, making the visible, uh, making the invisible visible. Uh, because uh, the, oftentimes what is happening is these particular issues are not addressed, uh, are not sort of um, examined. And for instance, one of the, one of the uh, chapters in the book talks about the ways in which Latinx students oftentimes in high schools are, uh, which we know historically because there's a lot of work on that, how they're oftentimes not encouraged to speak Spanish, not encouraged to identify, again, as Mexicano, as Chicano, as Latino, as a person of color, um, and instead made to feel like they have to simply assimilate as opposed to really thinking about their cultural heritage as something that's an asset that makes you strong. Me identifying as Latina, as Mexicana, as Chicana, speaking Spanish. I speak Spanish and English and I do a mezcla all the time. That's the way that I speak and engage in the world. Um, and to be able to feel confident and being able to do that and being able to feel like that is the way in which I want to be in these spaces is an important part of what we're also trying to encourage and think about how do we also uh, work with community partners and young children to really encourage that as well. Because of the, oftentimes, you know, in the schools that we're working with in, um, in Holyoke, in Massachusetts, which there's a lot of Boricua, uh, one time I was working with this teacher and he was apologizing because the students were speaking Spanish. And I said, don't, don't apologize that they're speaking Spanish. There's a, there, that's the way in which they're working through the material. We were, working, we were actually making these little uh, convertible or these little um, broadcast station things. They were really small. And the only way that they can work, they were working and we were talking in English, but then as they're working together, they were going back and forth between English and Spanish. That's how they were actually able to move through and be able to do the work. Um, and so to, to feel like he had to apologize, you know, actually made me pretty upset because I was, I, there was a lack of recognition of an asset that's actually being bilingual was helping them to be able to learn and to be able to do the work that they had to do. It wasn't a negative thing. It was actually something positive. So how do we also work with teachers to disrupt what is the possibilities of being multilingual, for instance, or, or multi um, sort of present in different ways? So this is just like the you know, breakdown of the various different uh, you know, sections of the book, rethinking community civic engagement, community voices, and the politics of place. And then we have a particular section, um, largely because I am in communication media studies, and that's my area of expertise and the area that I really you know, emphasize a lot is expanding media and cultural power of communities. And so what I want to do really, like what I want to uh, do really quickly is to go over just three examples of the work that's presented in this book, but that is continuing work that's taking place that really sort of captures how these faculty, along 
along with their students, along with their community partners, are really disrupting what does it mean to do this kind of community-based work that's really social justice oriented in its sort of rootedness of, of this work. So this piece is called Imagining Nueva Casita, Puerto Rican Subjectivities and the Space in Between an Urban Farm in Western Massachusetts. Does anybody know what a casita is? A Puerto Rican casita? So the Puerto Rican casita is um, these little small uh, sort of structures, very small cottages as well in New York and in Chicago, a couple in Florida, but mainly in the Northeast that are really sort of a, re a reclaiming of space and of trying to bring a Puerto Rican sensibility and cultural practice into that space. So that's a place where you have bomba and plena and lechon and you have people celebrating a whole variety of different uh, Puerto Rican holidays and, and cultural practices, but it also has expanded to include a whole wide range of Latinx communities as well. So it's not just Puerto Rican anymore, but really sort of seen as the center of the space of community. So kind of like a cultural center, but much smaller and really root, community rooted. So it's not something that's from the top down from, from the top up. And it's really about bringing the island into the mainland and really thinking about that relationship. So Joseph, um, he was asked by a local, because again, Western Massachusetts is very agricultural based. So not just tobacco fields, but lots of corn, uh, lots of corn, uh, and lots of a variety of different sort of agriculture that's developed there. And so Nuestras Raices is a community-based, largely Latino, um, community organization that basically was able to buy these large this swath of land next to the river, which is the Connecticut River, because we are along the Connecticut River Valley, um, and wanted to work with Joseph and his students to think about how do we, we, we make a space that includes sort of not just the traditional um, sort of agricultural, cultural uh, practices of New England, but also the Puerto Rican uh, sort of, uh, you know, cultural practices of agriculture as well together in this space, given that people have been here for a very, very long time, but we're not able to necessarily bring those pieces. So if you see there in the back, it's kind of is hiding between there, but it says Lechonera. And Lechonera is a pig roasting uh, space in Puerto Rico. If you go up to Puerto Rico in different places, there's a lot of Lechoneras everywhere where they have the pig roasting and so forth. And so this is what they wanted to create there. And this is actually in Puerto Rico. So we went to Puerto Rico uh, and we were looking at all the different kinds of lechoneras that were going there. We went with uh, uh, a couple of, like maybe six months before the project in order to see what are the different ways in which it's being utilized there, but also thinking about how it's used in Western Massachusetts as well. So with his students, this is what he designed given that he's an architecture professor, right? So he worked with the community partner along with the students to really redesign and really think about what does a lechonera in, in Western Massachusetts look like? What does a Massachusetts Puerto Rican sensibility look like? They'll bring those pieces together so that the lechonera experience and cultural and, and food practice is still very much part of Western Massachusetts, but in a, in a way that is not necessarily redoing sort of the sort of tropic tropicalization tropes oftentimes that are imagined about Latinos. So not that color is bad, color is great, but oftentimes it's seen as only color or it's only seen as sort of more traditional sort of uh, kinds of architecture. And so working really closely with the community partners and the community members, it was about thinking about how do we bring those pieces together, but also reimagine that uh, in ways that takes that into account. So that was like one example. And again, in uh, Massachusetts, um, right now there's 18 states where one in five children that are in kindergarten are Latino, just like in New Mexico, one in five children 
in kindergarten is Latino. And they're making up, of course, as we know in the US, 18% of the US population. And so there is sort of a, a really rethinking that needs to happen about how do we include these communities and how do we create a space of belonging you know, that oftentimes have been completely disregarded and haven't been, uh, haven't been included in both politics of cities, but also in terms of how do we imagine space and the built environment that really takes into account what are the assets uh, and the cultural backgrounds that people can bring into these spaces that get acknowledged. So the other piece um, that I wanted to just bring out really quickly is Celeste Gon uh, Gonzalez de Bustamante. She's a professor at um, University of Arizona. She really works closely along the US-Mexico border. And she's a journalism professor uh, and has worked really, uh, really carefully with really thinking about how do we capture those stories of what that means to be working along the US-Mexico border. And not just working, but living and being in that space, particularly in this moment in time, which is being increasingly, which has already been militarized, but increasingly more so and really contested in ways that are reshaping the ways in which people are able to engage with each other. So this one is a little short, uh, just a, a quick slide that sort of shows the work that she's been doing with her students. So this is work that she has been producing with her students in her courses. And so a lot of this work is also, how do we utilize the classroom environment, not as a traditional lecture, let's just go through the material, how do we put it into action? How do we actually you know, embody it and really bring it to life? You know, so it's not just us sitting in classrooms reading. That's important, and I think we need to do that to theorize. But how do we theorize from the ground up as well? And how do we make sense of the work that we're reading so that it can actually make that kind of impact that we want it to make uh, working with community partners? And so this is um, the work that she's been doing with her students where they've been looking at, particularly looking at Nogales, ambos Nogales, mapping it out. Um, she's also been collaborating with other faculty Faculty. So some of this work she can't do by herself, but she's working with other faculty that have more expertise on how to do some of this work as well. So she's not working necessarily alone. And again, it's about thinking beyond the collaboration of only me and my students and my community partners. How do I partner with other students, other faculty that are also interested in not just the work itself, but the broader topics and the broader issues that we're trying to grapple with. So this is an example of some of this stuff. And you can actually find her work online where it shows. And it's been incredibly impressive, along also with Joseph's work where they've been actually producing things. So it's not just studying it you know, from far away, but really being part of it and really sort of working collectively on that. And the last one is by Rogelio Mignana. He's a, uh, he was a professor at, um, at Mount Holyoke College. I can't remember what university he's at now. But he's somewhere, he moved to Philadelphia. And so he's out there now. But he's uh, someone that contributed to the project. Also now is working with a whole different set of community, still Latinx, but in the Philadelphia area that in the fact they believe is largely Mexicano that he's working with. And so he did digital storytelling. Uh, the thing that's really great about his piece is that he's also thinking about the humanities. Because oftentimes we think about social science sciences or more traditional kind of areas that oftentimes do work. But how do the humanities can be part of civic engagement, service learning? It's not just simply, and he's a literature professor. And so how do we think about utilizing the possibilities of resources at universities, but also with our students to do that? Um, and again, this is a very short, like one minute video or so uh, of that Nestor Helio working with some of the students. So in this particular piece, I think that one of the things that's important is that not only are the digital stories still existing on the website, but that they have been used for public policy conversations, both at a very local level. But some of the folks that graduated are now working at the higher ed commission of um, a part of the state of Massachusetts. And so bringing that experience and that, and that uh, understanding makes a big difference of how even at that level, the kind of discussion 
discussions that are taking place about Latinx students and particularly Puerto Rican students in this case are impacting are impacted by educational settings and by various different um, sort of policies that are being passed at a very local and state level as well. So again, how do we capture those different stories? Some of it also has to do with asthma or diabetes or what are the various different things that the communities are grappling with. We also encourage faculty to, to publish this work. Right, so not just to do the work, but to document because other people want to learn from it, want to sort of engage with it, want to be able to, to know about it. Students want to be, want to sort of know how can I possibly do this maybe if I become a faculty member someday. And so I think that part of it is also not just to do it, but to document it to, and, and documentation can happen a whole variety of different ways, not only traditional publications, but that's the other way that we've been doing as well. Thank you all for making time to be here. We did a podcast with Campus Compact, which is the national uh, organization that works on civic engagement, community-based work at the university level. And so um, if you're interested, me and my co-editor did a podcast a while back so that, that it's up there. But thank you all for making time. I really appreciate you uh, being here today. Gracias. Professor Castaneda, thank you so much for the work that you've done to hold universities accountable to communities of color and for joining us here at UNM to share your work. And thank you to Professor Myra Washington and the UNM Communication and Journalism Department. Before we close our program, we'd like to announce an event happening on Saturday, November 9th at South Valley Academy, located at 3426 Blake Road Southwest. South Valley Academy has partnered with Blue Cross, Blue Shield, and Kaboom to build a sports court, a multiple-purpose court where students can play basketball, soccer, and volleyball. This will be the first sports court in Albuquerque. There will be a grand opening with a three-on-three -three basketball tournament. Volunteers are needed to come and support this event. For more information about the event and how you can volunteer, please contact South Valley Academy at 505-452 3132. Again, that's 505-452-3132. Our next event is a non-violence awareness walkathon from the Hindu Temple Society of New Mexico on Saturday, November 9th. Registration opens from 9.30 a.m. to 10 a.m. and the walk begins at 11 a.m. at the Harper Drive entrance of the Albuquerque Academy campus. Folks can walk either a 5k distance or a one mile in support of peace in the community. For more information, please visit htsnm.org. We hope you've enjoyed this hour of community and hip hop. We'd like to thank our guests, Wake Self, Professor Mari Castaneda, and thank you to our interviewer, Emilio Bovalet. Our engineer tonight is Edgar Cruz, and we'd like to thank Nicole Beatty, Barbara Ramirez, and Riazula Alikozai for production assistance. Tonight's program was produced by Kateri Zuni and Roberta Royal. We want to give a huge thanks to all of our youth producers. We cannot do what we do without you. We'd also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcast, which are also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. 
Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation with additional funding from the Konalma Health Foundation and of course all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. Our opening song is Youth of a Nation by P.O.D. And our last songs of the night come from Wake South's new album, starting with God, followed by Prayers, produced by Hu Lee. I am Milian Cordova. And I'm Kateri Zuni. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Consciousness collectively. God is all my homies. You see, and God is a refugee. You can see God without mushrooms or DMT. God is a mother trying to feed her kids on EBT. Yeah. Tell me who you pray to. Tell me what their name is. Are they gonna save you from yourself? Who be throwing stones first? Need a resurrection. I'm just trying to soul searching by myself. Walking through the valley, ay. Stepping out the shadows, ay. ay. All the sins in the Father's name when he was eating with the guy. Some people pray you fly, some pray you nose die. Please wrap me like a blanket in your light. I'm just praying I can make it through the night. Yeah. Count your blessings. Like one, two, three. One, two, three. Say your prayers. Say one for me. One for me. Yeah. Count your blessings. Like one, two, three. One, two, three. Say your prayers. Say one for me. Say one for me. Count your blessings.